Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Paul Kingsnorth, a writer who lives in the west of Ireland. He's a former deputy editor of The Ecologist and co-founder of The Dark Mountain Project. We chat about everything from big tech companies censoring people's views, being labelled if you go against the media trend, and how movements and communities thrive. I became familiar with Paul when I read a couple of his essays online during the pandemic. His attitudes and opinions on complex subjects I found pretty uh, exciting and uh, like edifying, I would say. He's a, certainly an alternative voice, and many of his opinions might be challenging for some of you, but I really feel it's increasingly important that we allow a diverse range of voices into the public conversation, if any such thing could ever be identified. Listen to shout-outs. Okay, here's a few listener shout outs. This one's from William McMahon. He says, hello, Russell. I've been following Under the Skin for the last few months and I really look forward to it every week. It is my walk-in podcast and non-work thinking podcast. Thanks for the brilliant, inspiring material, Willie. I'm glad that it's providing you company on a walk. It's a time when I really like listening to podcasts and it's giving you some relief. At the moment, I'm listening to Mr. Beast on Joe Rogan and that's what's providing me a kind of blend of contemplation and also education. That kid, I think, Mr. Beast, the YouTuber, he's the equivalent of like some 16-year-old monk that you might meet in an airport flying into Nepal and you'll look into the eyes of a child and think, oh my God, they know God. And that would annoy me, actually, because I'll tell you, tell me about that. He was a guest on the show... Um, you know, the dude who created Headspace, Andy Puddicombe, he told me that when he was a monk, he met a monk that was like 15 years old and he could see he was enlightened by looking at him. And my reaction was anger. Like I was like, you can't be enlightened at 16. I've spent my whole life trying to get enlightened. I've not even made it off the nursery slopes. This is Joy Smith. She says, I've just listened to your episode with Tony Robbins. The conversation was lovely and I learned a lot. Keep up the amazing work you do. I'll be in England from North Dakota this month. I've just booked to see your live show at the Lighthouse. Looking forward to seeing the show. I'm actually doing that show at the Lighthouse tonight. It is sold out and obviously you're listening to it after it's happened. Joy, it's going to be a fantastic show. I pray that it's going to be a fantastic show. And I love Tony, both as a mentor and as a friend. And as I would say, what do I call him? A kind of Superman shaman, a kind of powerful force for good, Superman Jesus. I've got a lot of uh, terms for that great man. If you want to see me on tour, there's only a handful of tickets left in Plymouth on April the 28th and Blackpool on the 23rd of May. Because there are a few tickets in Blackpool, if you email me at hello at Russell Brand and put Blackpool 33 in the subject and tell me why you want free tickets and pledge and promise to come, we'll send you some free tickets all right so but that's only if you send that email also subscribe to my mailing list if you're not already a subscriber go to russellbrand.com right now and subscribe to it and you'll feel hear about amazing offers like that and like the live show i'm doing with wim hoff on july 10th you can go to my website now if you want to or you actually have to sign up to my mailing list to register and if you're looking for ways to awaken your mind that's right your mind look up my awakening channel on youtube just search for russell brand hit subscribe and learn how to meditate completely for free or do a guided meditation every week on the platform you're already subscribing to uh, you can like listen to above the noise here on luminary but now it's time for under the skin with paul kingsnorth trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that's, route yes, that's, that, that's exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss it doesn't look like an ideology what's beneath the surface of people we admire of the ideas that define our time the history we are told Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Firstly, I already love you. So that's can, a good start. We can start on that basis. Right, good. I'll start from there. Any particular reason or just a, gen, just a general love? Or? No, actually, it's quite particular and specific. It was because of the manner in which I saw you um, explaining the unheard interview. Mm. You know, when you sort of, uh, what I enjoyed, Paul, was. I think it's. Sort of, do you know where I first heard this? It was in sales. God, like when I was, I once heard like one of those, I guess, sort of how to sell people stuff type self help type tapes, and it said a way to sell things is to start from the to explain your own journey from a position of skepticism and doubt, and and because you're obviously that's the journey you want in that case a customer or in your case a, a sort of um, a listener to undertake and you know I, I thought it was very sympathetically and rationally and reasonably undertaken well uh, yeah, yeah i'm just uh, it's nice to occasionally try to do that given the state of everything at the moment you know you know how to do that yourself you're pretty good at it you i'm you know i've been enjoying your stuff recently and not just because i'm coming on oh paul thank you 
there's a space you're holding, which is really hard to hold, actually. So I think it's good work. One of the things I've discovered and um, and learning about, is there a place for us? What are we now? Now that there is no, what is the home for people that believe in freedom um, and recognise now that that rhetoric is being sort of held in places that we wouldn't usually have migrated towards? I'm speaking specifically of, you know, the political right and libertarianism. Those of us that believe in mm, social justice, egalitarianism, sharing uh, love, um, decentralization, but the need for regulation of big business. Well, who are we now? What do we believe in post-pandemic? What's happening to this fractured landscape? And if this takes you the whole podcast to answer, Paul, I'm happy to shut up. You want me to answer all those questions in order? Or should we just should we just dive in? Um, it's a good question, isn't it? Um, so the, the place to start is probably with language, actually. And I'm a writer primarily. And language is what I do. And language is what I like. And the aim of a writer, I think, is to write the perfect sentence. If I could write the perfect sentence, I'd die happy. Um, haven't managed it yet. But, you know, as well as writing about this uh, kind of the state of things at the moment, which I feel drawn to do, I've written novels and I've written poetry. And so I'm really interested in how words are used and how language is used. And so a lot of what you just said there is is kind of categorization, right? So we're talking about the right and the left and social justice and egalitarianism and all these things. And, you know, libertarianism and you say, oh, the word freedom has been hijacked by these people. So I don't like that word. Um, and this is what everyone's playing with all the time. And language is what we use to define who we are and, and the landscape we live in. And, you know, you've, you've talked about this yourself. Um, in fact, you talked about it recently with, the, with, with regard to this notion of misinformation, right? This, this propaganda term that, that is being used or is being fought over. So we, we fight over the notion of what misinformation is so that certain types of people get to tell us what kind of information is acceptable and who therefore can't be listened to. Um, and I think if we look at the whole, say, political landscape or cultural landscape like that, then, that's, then, then what we see is an endless fight over the language in which we try to define ourselves or, or a fight over the boxes that other people want to put us into. So the terms left and right are good, a good example of that. And what do they mean? Could anybody seriously sit down now and define what right wing is or what left wing is? And could they then go out onto the street and get 10 other people to agree with them? Probably not. Um, at least since 2016, that stuff's been exploding. And probably long before that, it didn't mean anything. I mean, back in the 80s in Britain, you kind of knew what the left was and you knew what the right was. You don't know anymore. You don't know at all because things are moving all over the spectrum, if there even is a spectrum. And that's because the, the culture is shifting so fast. All of the old assumptions are collapsing. The economy's doing all sorts of things. But more broadly, I think across the West, we just are so confused about what we are and who, who we are and where we're going and who's in control that it's almost impossible to put yourself into a category. And so that seems to have had two effects as far as I can see. Firstly, there's a lot of people like me and like you and probably like a lot of your listeners who do feel politically homeless. There's a group of people out there who think I'm very right wing. There's another group of people who think I'm very left wing. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't accept either of those labels. But the other thing it's done is it's obviously created this enormous polarization where people think they have to get into one tribe or the other and then throw bricks at the other tribe, which means that you're not listening to them. And that's the culture war. And then with COVID in particular, that seems to have the whole narrative about the pandemic slotted into that pre-existing thing, you know, where, where if you love freedom, it's because you're a fascist. And if you if you don't want to wear a mask, it's because you don't mind if people die. And then then the whole argument about whether you should take a vaccine or not, which ought to be pretty un uncontroversial, becomes this kind of dumpster fire of culture war stuff because people some people anyway, and this is totally driven by social media, as far as I can see, want to have fights. They want to get into this 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 stuff. And it's it, we got to the point around COVID towards the end of last year, whereas I found myself, it's almost impossible to speak without, you know, try saying, try saying 10 words in order around COVID and see how many thousand people jump on you. So we've got to a point where language is almost broken down in some way. So the challenge is almost to find spaces where you can actually talk to people, get heard, and then work out what you're trying to say, what they're trying to say, and also what you think. Because if we're in a hugely polarised time, it's almost impossible to, 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 to sit down and say, well, I'm not sure about that. Or I'm working out what I think about that because, you know, one slip of language and you're cancelled. 
uh, you're in that kind of state. So it's it's a very hard place to be. But yeah, we're, I think we are in a kind of, um, we're just in a huge pregnant widow moment. You know, the king is dead, the widow is pregnant. We don't have a, we don't have an heir. We don't know what's going on. Um, and so it's, we're not in a time where we can actually work anything out. I think we're in a time where we're in a, we're in, we're in flux. We're moving from one state to another. And we don't know what the, what things are going to look like in even five years time. And that, that, so a lot of people feel like there's a huge amount of stake, which might be another reason for the kind of the venom. It's always kind of assumed there's a, a, a generational grandiosity in the assumption that it is us that's enduring and confronting the end times. But how can you dispute that idea with everything you've already described? You touched upon the fight for language, which I suppose could be seen as the literally the intermediary terrain through which we can connect with one another. And you also mentioned, Paul, the ideological collapse and with these sort of mutating and shifting values with and, and and the inability to establish clear taxonomies or even sort of basic codes definitions does that point to that sort of epochal idea of a kind of a, a lack of a binding myth is even though we're experiencing this through like first trump brexit and you know i'm sure you know perhaps preceding that they were clear markers now, most vividly, the sort of um, the divisions around coronavirus that you've described. Do you think that it does point to, you know, you've already used that like very um, potent and poignant image of the pregnant widow. Is there something mythic occurring now? And if you believe that, what aspect of our nature do we need to access in order to find a place where we can hmm, resource some uh, tools to navigate this liminal space you've described yeah that's a great question um and that's exactly where we are i think we are almost to me now the only thing that makes sense is looking at it through a, a kind of mythic framework through a spiritual framework to use that horrible word in a way that can mean everything and nothing really like this i mean i, I suppose i've been writing quite a bit about this recently so you know, there's a lot of talk around about the decline of the West and the collapse of the West and this kind of stuff, right? Which I think you're right, is obviously happening in, in some very clear ways. Um, so we're in a kind of cultural collapse where all the forms that we, we thought we knew are falling apart and we can't agree on new ones. So there is no binding story. So we can sit around and talk about, you know, we the people, or we can sit around and talk about our country or whatever we consider our group of people to be. But there isn't, they don't really hold together in a way that maybe they held together once. If you look back at the mythological story of, of this thing called the West that we apparently live in, you discover that the only reason to talk about anything called the West is because it was the domain of the, of the church. It was the Christian. It was Western Christendom. That's what we're talking about. So Eastern Christendom is the Orthodox Byzantine Empire, and then Western Christendom is the domain of the Pope. And that was the case for pretty much a thousand years. So for better or for worse, whatever your view on that, the the morals, the ethics, but more importantly than that, the, the kind of un the cosmological story of all of our people for a thousand years was the story of Christianity. It's the story of Christ at the center. It's the story of the fall and the resurrection and all of these things that we, we, we know. Even now, we know them. And from, say, the Reformation onwards, but certainly from the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, that story started collapsing and fragmenting. And by the time we got to the 20th century, most people in the West were walking away from it. And we've now got to the point, I think, where, you know, certainly in Britain, I mean, it's just not a religious country, it's certainly not a Christian country. But it's not a religious country. So that story, that cosmological story, we don't believe it anymore. And so it doesn't guide anything, but nothing's come to replace it. There's no there's no cosmological story that certainly us as a group, whoever that is, have bought into. So that's why we, we end up in this pregnant widow moment. We can't agree on basic stuff because... You know, even when I was growing up, say, in, in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s in England, I wasn't Christian. No one I knew was Christian, really. I didn't have, an, I didn't have a religious family, didn't like religion particularly. But all of my assumptions and morals really were Christian. Of course they were. They always are, because that's our founding myth. And now that's crumbling. And I think younger generations now, particularly, they don't grow up with that myth particularly. But they haven't got anything instead. And the danger of that is you just then get into a swamp, which I think is where we're going. And social media accelerates this about a million times where you haven't really got anything to guide you except your individual desire 
So you define the world. So we all define the world. And that that fuels everything from debates about gender to arguments about, you know, all the cultural stuff is fueled by that. Uh, and again, we're in a pregnant widow moment. We're not obviously moving towards a new cosmology. We're not obviously moving back towards the old one. Some people are, but you know, as a, as a society, whatever that is, we're, we're stuck. And so what that does is think of this from a mythic perspective, right? There's a throne at the heart of every culture, put it that way. There's always somebody sitting on the throne at the heart of your culture. So for a thousand years, it was Christ in the West. If you were in the Muslim world, it would be maybe it would be Muhammad as the prophet, right? There's always something that you give your allegiance to. If you dethrone that person, you don't get an egalitarian paradise. Something else comes to sit on the throne, something or someone else. Maybe it's the devil. Maybe it's capitalism. Maybe it's this, this system that I've taken to calling the machine, this great technological um, beast that has, that has effectively enveloped us all. But you're going to, easy way of saying it is you're going to worship something, but you're going to have something at the heart of your cosmology. And we haven't got anything that we really know, that we really understand. So I think there's something sitting on that throne, this machine that is fucking with our minds, to put it, to put it mildly at the moment and we don't know what we're doing at all we're totally lost so that's i think it's all it's kind of mythology all the way down at this point you know that's some good stuff there paul there's some proper um <laughs> some dark beasts slouching their way to that throne at the oh, big, yeah. like I, I feel there's a few things that, that, that um, what you said one was like just this idea came like you know sort of like, you know, sort of, I don't know, 80 years ago, our culture, West Anglophonic, was fighting the Nazis. Then we're fighting the commies. Then we're fighting the commies in little bitty countries. Then we're fighting displaced non-local terror. Then we're fighting germs. It's sort of becoming more and more sort of dissolute and diffuse. And <laughs> it's getting more feeble all the time, yeah. <laughs> tiny microcosms and more and more unable to sort of picture it and more and more dethroned, less and less sovereignty, less and less sort of apparent dualism or clarity. And like there's obviously the sort of, um, the kind of, um, yeah, the sort of the hollow left by Nietzsche in its mists are fulfilled only by, um, as you said, the the individual desire. I once sort of said of like myself, like as a person becoming a celebrity in like the two thousands or early two thousands or whatever, I wrote all these books. And I thought all of those books could have been called "What I Reckon," but the, the, the whole culture. <laughs> well. That's a good description of my entire career. So thank you. <laughs> this is what I reckon. I reckon this, and it's like that, that sort of this is enough for, for people to to get by on. And the way you describe it is like you know we have Christendom, then we have the Enlightenment and rationalism, and the tools that are used to dismantle this sort of uh, central myth primarily leave only the well in my opinion leave only the individual certainly they only leave what is measurable and it's not only that we lost the myth that we sort of lost myth making almost we were so sort of keen to go hold on a minute this christendom thing it's oppressive it's hierarchical it's wrong all the things that were sort of like legit reasons to discredit whichever particular religion you want to critique in our sort of shared um, rapacity to dismantle it, we forgot that actually, hold on a minute, there's something vital and necessary at its core. And all that's left for us is the acknowledgement that there would, must have been something deeply mythically true about Christianity that we have lost and that we must somehow revive. And what is going to be our, what, what are going to be our methods, our ceremonies and rituals for this um, resurrection? Yeah, and also I think since um, you know we we also look back now, don't we, and we say, well, maybe there was a reason that that some of those social mores existed. You know, maybe there was a reason that we had uh, the, the the notion of say, I don't know, deadly sin was there. Maybe maybe there's a reason that we that we thought that usury was bad and that avarice was bad and greed was bad and lust was bad or not bad, but certainly needed needed to be controlled. Um, there was a reason for these. You know, perhaps there was thousands of years of wisdom behind the need to actually control the worst of our vices, because now what we've done is we've we've decided that because there's nothing left but the individual, then there's no reason not to do what would have been called indulging our vices by my grandmother um, over and over and over again, because they're not vices anymore, because we have no agreement on what's right or wrong or anything else. Um, and yeah, that's exactly what it is. And the interesting thing about it as well is that precisely that we associated Christianity in the West with firstly these kind of quite oppressive structures, which they certainly sometimes were, 
but also that Christianity here had been bleached of its kind of mythic content, I think, over a long period since the Reformation, I would say, and ended up being just kind of a list of moral rules. You know, you do this, don't do this. Here's a load of stuff that's a sin. Don't do this. Go to church on a Sunday, listen to a sermon, go home. And here's a list of things not to do and try and be good. Um, otherwise, Jesus will judge you. And that's that's not if you look at the history of traditional Christianity or even Eastern Christianity or Christianity here in the Middle Ages, that's not how the how it was seen by anybody. It's a, it's a, exactly a cosmological structure and it's very mythic. I mean, a good example of this might be, say, the sort of biblical literalism that came about in the 19th century in America, which you still get some fundamentalists doing, you know, trying to interpret the book of Genesis like it's a science book and saying the world is 2000 years old and everything here is literally true. That's a that's a modernist idea. That's an attempt to beat science at its own game by treating uh, a, a book like the Bible, which is mythic, doesn't mean it's untrue in its facts, but it means it's got a, it's it's a mythic understanding way of understanding the universe, treating it like it's a, a textbook from the from the age of reason, and it's not. And I think you know, my what I reckon here, um, just <laughs> so what I reckon is that what we're doing here is we're undergoing a big revelation. And what the revelation is showing us is that the age of reason, uh, while it brought us certain benefits, obviously, is not adequate to show us what the reality of the universe is. Um, uh, when I wrote about COVID towards the end of last year, when I finally couldn't stop talking, couldn't put it off any longer, I wrote a few essays on that. And, and the first one called The Vaccine Moment, I, I spent a long time in there talking about how this is an apocalyptic time. Uh, an apocalypse in the original meaning of the word. So we tend to assume that the, the word apocalypse means the end of the world. It's zombie attack, this kind of stuff, right? But obviously it doesn't mean that. We get the word from the last book of the Bible, which is also the book of Revelation, because apocalypsis in Greek means revelation. It means something is unveiled. So when Christ is crucified, the, the veil in the temple is torn in two, right, famously. And that's because the veil between God and humanity has been torn in two by the crucifixion. So we're able having fallen from grace, having fallen from the garden, from communion with e in Eden, we're, we're separated from God and the, the work of Christ in the crucifixion and the resurrection is to rejoin us. So the path to God is open again. That's what the veil in the temple being ripped signifies. What we've got, I think, now is, is a revelation, an apocalypsis, which means an unveiling. So all, all that apocalypse means is unveiling. So something that was there already is seen now. So I mean, this is what COVID has done to my mind. It's, it's revealed almost abs almost everything about our culture, right? It's revealed who was in control all the time. It's revealed that you can't trust a word the media says. It's revealed what's in all of our hearts. Are we authoritarians? Are we so-called libertarians? Are we, are we cowards? Are we strong? Do we not know uh, that everything has been unveiled over the last two years? So it's literally an apocalypse. I love what you're saying about these revelations. So what we have seen is that, that which, which was always true, but was heretofore invisible to us is that this is where power is. This is what's possible. This is what's in our hearts. It was a, so in a sense, there is a great gift in COVID. Before we move on to what kind of revivification or the, some resacralization of life, before we sort of start to look at what that might look like and how that would ever be politicized, it, it, perhaps in terms of just principles of organization, anarchism, for example, libertarianism, a few of these sort of ideas that don't occupy the central territory currently. I wonder if you'd just tell us a little more about the nature of these revelations. I'm somebody who for quite a long time, 20 years or so, has been writing about, say, globalization, global power. My first book, nearly two decades ago now, was about globalization and corporate power and how it was destroying cultures around the world and resistance to that. And I was a young kind of fiery lefty activist at the time. And I thought that we just had to expose all this to the light. So I've sort of been looking at that for a long time. What I saw with COVID and particularly around people talking about the Great Reset, for example. I mean, this is this is really interesting. So, you know, there's some there's some nutty theories around the Great Reset. But the fact is that at the heart of it is the obvious fact that the Great Reset is a real thing. I've even read Klaus Schwab's extremely boring book on the subject. I don't know if you have. It's really, it's both boring and sinister at the same time. <laughs> oh, a horrible combination. I'm bored and scared. It's a horrible combination. It's like, that, that is the future, boring and sinister. Oh, that's the worst thing, Paul, that, that could happen. That's really ticked all boxes in two ideas. It's disappointing that you don't even get a kind of Terminator-style war against the machines. It's just kind of perpetual shopping <laughs> whilst being watched by drones. That's what, that's what it's coming down to. But, yeah, it's horrible. But, you know, this, it's the same old agenda. It's saving, the saving grace of global capitalism 
technological control, huge corporations running the show. Um, and people have seen it now. A lot of people have seen it through the pandemic because of this conversation around the Great Reset and also just because of the obvious fact that you have now, you've had big tech censoring people's views for, for two years, really openly, and a huge number of people defending that. I never thought we would see that. Um, I was probably very naive. Um, I never thought we would see that. I'm also somebody who's worked in the media for 20 years. I've written a lot for newspapers. I worked in Fre Fleet Street for a short time in the 90s before I fled because I hated it and I was terrible at it. Um, but, you know, so I know how the media works. I always knew the media was kind of a propaganda system in a Chomskyan sense. But again, I've never seen it so naked. I've never seen the deliberate demonization of dissent, the simple refusal to publish stories. I mean, what's happening at the moment with these Canadian truckers? Try finding that in a British paper. I mean, it's, unless they're calling them fascists like The Guardian does. But apart from that, you're not going to see it. And just the obvious, obvious plain manipulation of news was, was stark in a way that it hasn't been before. Before, it's always been quite subtle. Now it was stark. And it was like, we have an agenda and this is the agenda. And if you don't like the agenda, we're either going to ignore you or we're going to call you this selection of names here. Conspiracy theorist, anti-vaxxer, far-right activist, whatever it is. So you've got the, the obvious reality of corporate power. You've got the, the, the obvious reality, I think, of, of media censorship and, and, and the promotion of propaganda. You've got whatever the hell is going on with government, and I still can't quite work this out. Is this a, the biggest cock-up ever, or is this a conspiracy, or is it a combination of the two? But certainly what I saw um, is, you know, and again, I've always been somebody who's pretty suspicious of, of the state anyway. But I, I can say now that I don't think I could ever trust the state again to tell me anything that I would ever believe in. And I don't believe that if there was any kind of social contract that, it, that is in any way binding on me anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm not vaccinated, for example, so I'm obviously a Nazi. Uh, and I had to, you know, I had to, along with many other people in my country, effectively be shut out of society for six months with a vaccine passport. You're in Ireland. In Ireland, yeah. And it was very, very strict here. It was pretty rigid. Um, that, you know, you could argue about the science of that all day, but the fact is that the vaccines don't prevent transmission of the virus, as we know. So there wasn't really a justification for that. But even if you could argue scientifically that it was a good thing, the fact that it happened with government emergency powers being taken with no debate, no public discussion, no dissent, virtually nothing in the media at all, that ought to terrify anybody, whether they've had a vaccine or not. And as I, as I was trying to repeatedly say in my, in my writing on that, the, the vaccine itself is not the point. You know, it's, it's the systems they build around it that's the point without debate and consent. So I've seen, you know, I've, I've seen what the media is like, what corporations are like. I've seen what state power is like when it's really nakedly used. And I think probably having grown up, you know, over the last few decades in, in Britain and Ireland in a quite liberal, easy, free sort of time, I was pretty naive about that. If we take, for example, just the revelation that people who we would have assumed to have had um, liberal um, perspectives and attitudes uh, uh, take up a different position under the light of this revelation, that in itself um, uh, points to the lack of a kind of authentic and integrated set of values such as might be uh, commensurate with a, a myth and a, a defining myth, a set of stable principles and values that wouldn't would I would I would say by their nature, Paul perhaps could be called universal. Because uh, I mean, in particular, things like well, integrity, the right of other people to make choice, those kind of things. It feels like that. You know, when you talked about what what are the um, aspects of Christianity that are not simply cultural edicts or moral guidelines rigidly imposed but a kind of the aspect of scripture of you know any um in transdenominationally that is a tool to elicit a psychic state inaccessible through reason a kind of uh, you know the metaphysics of christianity a an attempt to reach planes that will be necessary for dealing with reality that doesn't necessarily need mean to be need to be psychedelic or perhaps even transcendent it might actually just be a way of harboring and accessing and understanding emotion you know perhaps comparable to the way that you say that the covid has been revelatory i wonder if there do, do you sense or in any way see a set of ideas or tools that could align with 
um, systems of organization. Do you see a set of valuables and a, a, a kind of a set of mythic principles or even a narrative or story that might have the power to help people do what seems at least one as that seems to be fundamentally important in one aspect of this um, uh, uh, contretemps, like help us to come together and and even point to perhaps a way of um, organizing differently. And I recognize that really what I've asked you to do there is come up with a religion and a political system for the post-apocalyptic yeah, era. Right. Yeah, well, like, just give me a couple of minutes. I'll be able to sort that out for you. I'll have a sip um, of my drink while you do that. Yeah, do that. Have a coffee while I while I transcendentally solve the world's problems. Um, here's, here's the thing. Well, so the conclusion I've come to is that you don't get a culture at all if you don't have what you're calling something mythic but i would almost call something religious something sacred at its center so if you go back to that idea that there's a throne at the heart of culture the culture grows from sort of standing around that throne or if you don't like the image of a throne uh, you know it's, it's almost like the center of a lotus or something there's there's a sacred thing a sacred person a sacred claim that is somehow connecting you to god i think at the center of the culture and you can see that everywhere you can see that from the smallest indigenous tribe to the biggest civilization whether it's rome or byzantium whatever it is there's a there's a sacred thing at the heart of that culture which at least it claims in theory to be serving now in practice um you know humans are pretty broken fallen creatures and so all of the institutions we set up and end up being corrupted including all the churches but that doesn't mean there isn't a truth at the heart of them that they're set up to serve so i don't think you can have a culture in the sense of a group of people who've come together in in, in a particular shape i suppose without something sacred at its center but Here's the big thing. You can't invent the sacred thing, right? You, you can't, that's you using your rational mind again. I mean, we've seen a load of this over the last 50 years. Now let's invent a new religion and here's what it should have in it. I mean, I used to be an environmental activist and I was endlessly coming across people saying, oh, what we need is, a, is an eco-religion. Here's one, here's what our values should be. And they'd sort of lay them out and it would basically be sort of Christianity, Christian values with some trees. <laughs> you know? Because people don't understand, I think, and, you know, Tom Holland has written, the historian Tom Holland has written some great stuff on this recently. People don't understand the, the extent to which what we call liberal values come from Christianity. They just do. Because at the heart of the Christian story is the notion that everyone's created in the image of God. So every single human being is, is a sacred thing. And every single human being's work is to get back into kind of right relationship with God. And from that comes the notion of human rights. If you don't believe that every individual is sacred in the eyes of God, then what basis do you have for human rights? You can claim that everyone should have equal rights, but why? Why should they? Why should I not decide that I've got more rights than somebody else? If you haven't got some kind of higher claim, I mean, a humanist would argue with me about this, but I would I would say that the humanist is wrong and they're not here, so I, I don't have to... We win by default there. But exactly, I win by default, which is how I like it. But, you know, you, I think that if you don't have that sense of something that is higher than us, basically, if there's not something higher than the human self, then we fall into the human self, which incidentally is the story of the Garden of Eden as well. And, you know, here we are in communion with God and with every other creature and with all created things. And the one thing we're not supposed to do is eat this fruit from the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because as soon as we do that, we become self-aware. And we realize the first thing we do is we cover ourselves with fig leaves because we're embarrassed because we've noticed that we're separate. It's the moment of separation from God and from creation, from everything else. And so the work is to get back into that, that, creation i spent the last at least the last 10 years on a spiritual journey um i was a buddhist for a while i was a zen buddhist um and i was uh, i was uh, i was a witch actually i was a wiccan for a while a uh, pagan and i spent a lot of time looking into all mythologies and then a couple of years ago i had an experience which effectively made me a christian it completely blew me out of the water and uh, i've written about it a little bit but it's uh, you know what what i regarded as Christ turning up and knocking on the door and saying, right, get it sorted now. Come, <laughs> come home and start the work. And it was entirely un unexpected and, and quite unwelcome. I didn't want to be a Christian because of what I thought Christianity was. But I've ended up as, as an Orthodox Christian, an Eastern Christian, and I've discovered um, this whole tradition of Christian mysticism and asceticism going right back to, say, the Desert Fathers of the first, the third, third century and the early Christians and which has pretty much died in the West. As I said, Christianity over here became a kind of system of moral rules and, 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 and sort of social behavior, almost a social control system, but certainly a, a polite and respectable thing, which it was never supposed to be. 
But what I discovered to my excitement is that actually at the heart of the faith that founded the West is a system of mysticism, which the saints have been practicing for a long time, which is still there, still there in the Eastern Church. That's what's just kind of drawing me in at the moment. It's difficult to think about anything else. Now you, I mean, I think it's important, you know, we're talking about kind of political solutions, but I'm quite, I'm quite passionate about not connecting politics with religion in that way. You know, I don't think you can build a politics around a religion in the sense that, you know, you're not going to make Britain Christian again or something or indeed anything else. But you can, on a personal level, reorientate the way you see whatever with, with, with that value system. If you believe it to be true, you can't do it if you're just kind of LARPing. You know, you have to believe it. Um, and when you do, then it, it you change. You know, it, it, it rearranges you inside and then that rearranges you outside. And, and, and that's how, you know, how did Christendom start? How did the Western Christendom start? It started with a few kind of mad monks coming over because they were sent by some some popes and desperately trying to kind of evangelize these pagan tribes who, who kept crucifying them and throwing them into rivers and things. And it's, you know, the whole history of Christianity is, um, is, is extremely unlikely. You know, you, you could, wouldn't have imagined that, that cultures would be built around this very strange claim about a man who was, who was killed and then reborn and, and, and the significance of that. But it was because people believed it. You talked there about the, uh, to set a couple of things that I'd like to follow up on. One is uh, the mystic practices of these sort of Eastern saints that continues to be part of the practice of uh, Orthodox Christianity. Obviously, I'm pretty fascinated by that. You also said that there is a sort of um, distinction between personal and political life. And I can see that in a practical way that perhaps all of our function is to sort of, uh, you know, awaken again to return to Eden. And, and you've obviously outlined one route to that. And it sounds and it's something I'm really interested in hearing more about. And I don't feel like you even believe it is separate from the political. You can't stop writing about it and getting involved with it. So um, like, uh, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I mean, it depends what you mean by politics, I suppose, doesn't it? I suppose when I say that, what I'm talking about is party politics, management of the state, that kind of stuff. Um, that's a dead duck, really. Um, not that it's not important, right? I mean, it's going to affect your life in some way, but but I suppose that's what I mean when I, when I say politics. I'm not talking about the engagement of humans with the way the world works. I mean, like you say, I can't... I've tried to stop writing about that, you know? I've, <laughs> I keep getting dragged back to it. I don't think it's possible because it is... Yeah, it, of course it's going to... Of course that's necessary. I mean, I think... Maybe one thing I'm a bit allergic to because, and I'm allergic to it because I have a tendency to it, is, is this kind of um, attempt to draw up a big plan that's going to solve all the world's problems. You know, it's a very, it's a very tempting thing, especially amongst men, actually, I think. So intellectual men, they love to do that. And uh, I'm one of them. So, so I'm very cautious of that because that's, you know, that's one of the... It's my hobby. Yeah, well, we all do it. Uh, I think the thing is to not enact it, otherwise you're Stalin. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's no better way to tyranny than to come up with a great big plan and try to make the world fit it. So uh, maybe that's what makes me a bit allergic to politics. But yes, politics with a small p in terms of how the world works. Yeah, I mean, there's no getting away from it. Like you say, it's really a question of how you're organising your society, how you live with the people around you. In, in some sense, I suppose that's all politics. Yes, it is. I feel like I want you to talk about anarchism a bit. <laughs> <laughs> why is that because i feel like it's something that you care about and i feel like that there's some application of it i feel like um it's one way of avoiding you know the this tendency to come up with um some uh, personal geopolitical nightmare mm. to inflict upon the world yes uh, except that perhaps there should be decentralized localized democratic power like and is you know is anarchism something that would benefit more people but that people would be attracted to if they understood it better that's one thing uh, then I would like to say, like, think about like whether or not there could be a sort of a nexus between that anarchism and the kind of uh, mythic reawakening that you've personally experienced. And then to round things off, uh, <laughs> um, just, to, just to solve all of the problems in the next ten minutes. Yep. Yeah, because otherwise I feel like many of these ideas sort of seem a little flat. You know, how like without an alternative hegemony, how do you ever oppose uh, neoliberalism? You know, like the fact is, is that localism, collectivism, all these sort of lovely ideas that sooner or later will be at odds with this evil force that's been revealed to us lately. Uh, what will happen? Well, that's the danger, isn't it? It's like, how do you oppose empire without becoming an empire? But then if you don't, how do you avoid being rolled over by it? It's a really good question. 
Um, my first book, which I wrote, as I say, 20 years ago, and it was a kind of journey around the world, and I was looking at anti-globalization, as it was called then, activism and different groups and communities. And that book was called One No Many Yeses. And that was, uh, I stole the title from a Mexican activist called Gustavo Esteva, who'd come up with it himself. And he was trying to define the difference between this new kind of quite decentralized anti-globalist movement and say the, move, the big leftist movements that had come before, say the Marxist movements, especially whereby you abolish capitalism and you've got a brilliant top-down, totally uh, intellectually watertight, uh, theoretically brilliant uh, imposition instead and then 100 million people die <laughs> um, it doesn't generally it's not generally popular anymore um, you know the 20th century pretty much gives the lie to, to big picture stories of that kind they're always tyrannical and so Gustavo Esteva's notion was this one no many yeses right so we also we're all saying no to the same thing which in this case is the machine globalization capitalism whatever sort of word you want to give this sort of techno capitalist nexus thing that's controlling us but we're not all saying yes to the same thing. We're not all required to have the same political solution. There are many yeses and they're localized, exactly localized. And, um, you know, always the movement that inspired me most back then was the Zapatistas in Mexico. You know, and the Zapatistas are an indigenous movement um, from the Mexican, uh, the Mexican state of Chiapas. And they staged the, the world's first and as far as I'm aware, only rebellion against a trade treaty on the day that NAFTA came into being because NAFTA, the North American Free trade agreement was break was was removing the borders between America and Mexico, which meant that Mexico was going to be flooded with cheap American corn, which would then destroy all the indigenous communities because they lived by growing corn. So uh, this rebellion takes place against both the Mexican government and NAFTA, but it's not a rebellion that's aimed at overthrowing the government and taking over the country. It's a rebellion that's aimed at saying we want to keep doing things in our way here, right, with our own cultural roots in the modern world without being pushed around by the United States or the Mexican government, which is its proxy. And they're still there, the Zapatistas, and they've made it work. It's difficult. They're still there. Um, and there are many, many movements like that. And I was trying to look into them in that book. And uh, I feel like almost I'm coming back to the same place, actually. And, you know, all of, all of my life, my politics has been about localization. It's the, the thing that always has made me passionate because local cultures are so distinctly different. Landscapes are different. I came up with this little formula recently, actually, which, um, which I've called the three P's, which is the foundation for a successful culture. So here's my big idea. Um, and, and the three P's are people, place and prayer. So if you have a culture that, you know, for a successful culture, what we call a culture to be successful, my little theory is that you need these three things, right? You need people, place and prayer. So people, you need a people, you need whatever that is. It's a group of people who've decided they're a culture. It could be a village, it could be a nation, it could be a tribe. Then you have a place, they have an intimate connection to their landscape. They love it and they cherish it. They live from it. They don't allow it to be destroyed. They harvest it, but in a way that's you know sustainable, if you like. And then there's prayer. There's a connection to the divine. If you have all those three things, if you, if you look at any working culture throughout history all over the world, I think you see a combination of those three things. And then if you look at modern cultures, you see that we have none of those things. We don't have a people, whatever that would even mean anymore, because we're all individualists. We don't have any connection to landscape because it's all been taken away from us and very few of us are praying to anybody. So I think if you, you know, if you look at that, that's an interesting way of seeing it. And it's very, that kind of almost sort of, it's almost like sort of a narco-traditionalism or something. I don't know what you'd call it, but it's, you know, it's, it is very anarchistic, but it's also based on, say, say the Zapatistas would be a good example. It's based on existing cultural roots. So you're not just inventing everything from, from new cloth. You know, the, the landscape you're in, has a history. The people in the landscape has a history. If if, you, if you're localizing based it based on that rather than on some you know new theory that you've created, um, then you've got something significant. Now the question of how you then stop being crushed by corporate power is another one, and that's always the hard one. But I think culture begins at local level always. It's like you know you return to the sacred center with religion. You return to the local place in in culture, and and that's. Um, it comes back to that again and again. So it is a form of anarchism, really, I suppose, in a sense. But 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 it's not theoretical, like you say. It's very it's very rooted, and it doesn't have to be based around where you come from. You may come from the place you're in, or you may not. But it's a, it's more about where you are and the community you're in and what you can do with that. And um, so I, I keep coming back to that again and again and again. And um, I've seen a lot of examples of it in my in my work over the years. So it, you know, and and I think that the 
the, the almost the purpose of the global machine is to make it impossible to live like that right because the the, the ultimate form of resistance against globalization if you like is not marxism or, or grand leftist theories or indeed grand rightist theories it's having some roots in a place and, a, and in a community and doing things your own way and not going to the shops and not you know not not having a smartphone that would be my fundamental basis basic initial form of resistance refusing to participate as much as you can in all the big systems that want to want to want to basically tie you down or enslave you and uh, so yeah that, that's probably closer to anarchism than any other ism if you like but i think it's also it has to be rooted you have to kind of get your hands dirty i think to make it to make it real now, how then, right, having explained to those that the sort of potential for like an anarchism, like the touching on that stuff around, uh, you know, because there's that fully, what's the stuff Pinchbeck talks about, fully luxurated, like, you know, communism, like a... Oh, yeah, like, yes, yes, fully automated luxury communism, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. Yes, yes. And because and like, uh, I suppose like sometimes, sometimes I have a smartphone, obviously, and, you know, and sometimes I dispatch with the little guy for 24 hours and basically i mean with with withdrawal the entire time desperately trying to train my eyes on my children you know and i can see like <laughs> i'm so devoted to him i love him so much it's ridiculous but like you know what it's like and i um i wonder how these ideas um relate to what you've said about your own um sort of um, mystical and personal conversion there and how solution obviously it's pretty clear how the sort of prayer idea would be resolved in a sort of like a coming home to christianity but can you tell me what you mean like how how does how does that relate to what we're discussing how has it provided you with a solution that is beyond an individual one and if it is just an individual solution if you forgive the audacity of this question how is it not just the um, just the progression down that path of individualism like you know that idea that when you talk about one talks about enlightenment do i mean really i just want to feel better yeah well that's always a good question um well in a way there's always a tension between these two things because if you're talking about the politics of the world and forming communities and how to live in the day-to-day -day, i mean christianity is in some ways especially the traditional version is it's almost a challenge to that because firstly it's universalist you know anyone can be christian from anywhere the faith is universalist in that sense so it's not a sort of particular local thing and you know christianity has also displaced a lot of tradi traditional local faiths and religions over time um, sometimes peacefully and sometimes very much not so there's that sort of tension um i suppose but there's also um i think the thing about the christian story and the christian claim is that at the heart of it is is the need to get crucified which nobody wants so we you know we're all supposed to we're, the aim of the orthodox faith is to to be christified so you're trying to you're trying to imitate christ you're never going to be like christ in that sense but you're trying to follow the path and the path is self-sacrifice all the time um which is why you have to love your neighbor um and that's a really interesting particular claim that jesus says that when he says that love your neighbor he doesn't say love everyone in the world he doesn't say love all humanity it's very particular actually he says love your neighbor Love the person next door, right? So it's quite a, it's quite a grainy kind of particular claim because you might not even like the person next door. You might not get on with them, but you're mandated to love them. <laughs> That's why it's hard work, right? And you've got to love your enemies as well. You not you know you're going to have enemies. It's fine to have enemies, but try and love them. And you know all the things we know about turning the other cheek and all of these kinds of things as well. You can't. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. So it's very um very very anti-accumulation throughout the whole thing it's it's a kind of radical simplicity and it's a kind of radical love actually at the heart of it because that's the way that's the way home um and it's it is very particular it's a very kind of grainy particular claim that is if you actually do it which obviously i don't most of the time because it's very hard i mean i try to but uh it's actually covid has been a good time to practice loving your enemy i have to say or at least praying for them um but if you know if you're doing that if you're living like that if you're living this path of sacrifice and if you're living this path of um of communion with god and and you're and you're attempting to love your neighbor and you're loving your enemy then you're putting everybody else before you and and that's also the heart of the kind of the, the tradition of the saints in the orthodox church and in the western church as well you know you don't the the, the way is a kind of radical renunciation uh, and the way, by the way, is what the original Christians called their path for a couple of centuries. They didn't call it Christianity. They called it the way, which was quite interesting. It's quite Taoist almost. Um, 
and it's radical renunciation. And the early Christians, again, they lived in small communities. They shared all of their, their property in common, very anarchist, actually, um, that, because that's what Christ had told them to do. Um, you, you read the Gospels and you can see what Jesus is telling people to do. It's very uncomfortable. Give everything away. Renounce the world. Love everybody. Um, think of God all the time. Always put yourself second. Serve people. Wash their feet. You know, it's, 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 it's precisely the opposite of what we all instinctively want to do all the time which is the point. So if you practice it, or even if you walk towards it, you're always renouncing, you know, what, what he calls the world, which is the human created world and your place in it. But you're not renouncing people, you're renouncing the structures um, and attempting to, uh, and that in itself is what is supposed to strip away this process of ascesis, ascetic practice is what strips away all of your passions, all the things that you're attached to in the world, whether it's your smartphone or your reputation or your clothes or your car, whatever it is that you like, we've all got different things that are attached to. Um, it's, a, it's the work of stripping those away because that's, that's, how you, that's how you see God. That's the claim. And you do that through, through what, what Jesus of Nazareth teaches you. And as I say, it's, um, it's the kind of thing I grew up listening to at school and assembly, you know, loads of stuff about Jesus, lots of prayers, didn't have any interest in it, didn't make any sense, sounded ridiculous. But now that I'm looking at it from an entirely different perspective um, and seeing an older version of it, I'm, I'm horrified and shocked to discover that there there's, seems to be a lot of truth in it. And that's, a, that's liberating, you know, it's liberating as well as, as surprising. Was there a mystical component to the trans, transition or transformation? Is there an event, a moment, a feeling? There was for me, there was a couple of things that happened to me. I mean, I, I started having, at the time, at the time I was searching for, searching for this religious truth that I thought was going to be out there. I mean, I think I'd probably have to go further back and say that, you know, as, as a young man, I was always a great lover of nature. I used to go on long walks with my dad. And so I had these kind of, I suppose, I wouldn't call them mystical experiences, but, you know, you watch a sunset on a mountain and, and you're, you're kind of uplifted and you can see there's a kind of, passion there and I had this great love of the natural world for so many years and and that fed into my politics uh, I became an environmental activist and a road protester and all sorts back in the 90s and the early 2000s and when I look back on that now I think what I'm seeing is is a kind of religious instinct you know which came to me through what a Christian would call creation and again one of the claims of the the original church and well, actually one of the claims of the church now is that you know one of the best ways to see God is to look at nature because you know, how do you know somebody? You look at what they create and then you understand it. You know, if I want to know Russell Brand, I might read his books or look at his podcasts. I wouldn't know the essence of him, maybe, but I'd get a good idea of who he was. Um, so, you know, that's, that's it seems to me like even a lot of my environmental activism was an attempt to find truth in some way to, to respond to this religious experience I'd had or spiritual experience where I, I couldn't bear to see nature destroyed because I, I was so connected to it in a way that wasn't rational. It wasn't about sustainability or carbon or something. It was like, no, what, what are you doing? How can you destroy this forest? That's so obviously a holy place. You know, and it, and it, it still continues to amuse me that we can do what we're doing to the world and that people can't see it. I mean, obviously a lot of people can, but the people with the chainsaws can't. And so I think that was all a spiritual experience. And then I, then it just became in my forties, it became much more, um, specific and I ended up as I said in in, in Wicca which is kind of the, the, the Wiccan coven the the the, the, uh, the classic sort of witch coven I was in I'm almost embarrassed to say it now but it was good fun you get to go to the woods and wear a cloak and do spells and things and was, that was great but I started having experiences which were very obviously Christian and I felt like I was being told very clearly to get the hell out of there which was really interesting to me and a bit weird and I was having dreams and I was having experiences and I would be in a in a, in a house about to go and do some uh, magical working and I would feel so sick that I couldn't stand up. All sorts of stuff was happening to me. And then I had a very particular dream with Christ in it. And then I had an experience when I was... What Christ looked like? Well, I'm afraid to say it looked, well, it looked a bit like you, actually, Russell. I mean, it's, right. It's, it's the thing. So it's starting to make sense. It's the beard. Because <laughs> you all along, you've ruined everything. Uh, no, it's the beard and the long hair, I suppose. But it was more of an impression. It was very clearly him. And he was very clearly... I was very clearly it was it was like this is the next step on your spiritual path and I was resisting all of this at the time I was telling myself it was nonsense then I had a very particular experience when I was uh, just sitting in a in a little school hall watching my son playing guitar in a, in a little concert orchestra that he's in and I suddenly had this 
experience similar to things I'd had on Buddhist retreats before, actually, but more powerful. Uh, this horrible word oneness is the only way I can describe it. You know, the, this, this intense love for everybody and everything, which I, is really not my normal, <laughs> normal state, but it was then. And I knew that that was, I just knew that that was Christ again. And so I just had to give in really. And, um, and that's what I did. And uh, here I am. And it's, uh, it's, it's all it's strange, it's a strange thing to talk about. But since I've written about it, um, I've had, goodness knows how many emails from people who've had similar things happen to them. So and that, this is what I mean about, I think, you know, if you're going to have a sort of a, a spiritual basis for anything you do, it has to be something that you really believe is true, you know, and maybe I'm just deluded and this is all a fantasy, but I do believe it to be true. It's very beautiful what you described. Thank you for sharing that. I got a lot of identification, uh, the inherent feeling about nature, like a feeling like that that's wrong. <laughs> What's happening? Mm. It's not like an intellectual argument or like one that even, you know, like when you, we began our conversation talking about like sort of language, of course, and like when you say like resources, it's not, like, it's not or even oh, yeah. sustainability. It's, this is, you can't do it. You know, like, because I feel like through my um, online stuff, I deal with people that um, are, let's say, somewhat na uh, navigate using what you might call right-wing talking points. And so when stuff like climate change and ecology comes up, they're already like, no, this is great reset mm. stuff. And, I, and I'm sort of like, but the feeling, the feeling, it can't be right to treat the ocean or the earth or the forest or the jungle or the animal like it's not right. This is who we are, like, you know, and I, so I, I get that. And the, um, the sort of um, simultaneously visceral and transcendent experience of love, this I, 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 I recognize what you mean. I recognize what you mean there. And I feel like, and also the sort of retrospective um, reimagining or reconnecting with childhood through a sort of a, a process of awakening. My brilliant therapist, Bruce, said, um, life is not linear, but neither is it a circle. It's a spiral. You see the same things again from a higher perspective or with deeper understanding. I thought it was a lovely thing. And I'm a 12-step person, you know, and the 12 steps are like, uh, they're uh, sort of obviously due to the, the time of their um, conception, Christian in um, you know, just because 1930s in America and the somewhat Jungian influenced by sort of William James but in a way a kind of a tool to elicit personal awakening to and mm -hmm. there's a sort of they're so um what do i want to say they're so mobile and plastic these principles because they uh, they're conceived obviously to deal with attachment to alcohol, a, a dependency, obsession with alcohol. But the the idea is, you know, the admission that there's a problem, the coming to believe that there could be a different way, handing your life and your will over to a, a higher power of your understanding, yeah. inventory, etc. You know, there's a very sort of a clear pathway to now your life is off surface. You know, mm. it's a, and the groups themselves, Paul, are like self-organizing, anarchic. That's why it's sort of you know anarchic in the best sense, sort of fully democratic. And, 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 and my experience of them, that means really slow. If you want a decision made, yeah. oh my god, like it's you just. Yes. I always think that I I thought this is something the old charisma could solve, but in this mm. one of the situations we think no, it can't. If you try to like influence it, like I once got involved in a sort of a particular project around twelve step stuff. And like you cannot like like there's a, some sort of democratic force at work that prevents even the sway of individual mm. influence. I feel that there is something you know like because when you talk about you know the apocalypse, when you talk about the revelation, there it seems in spite of your um, interpretation, your you know your fair interpretation, literal interpretation of the word apocalypse, it still still feels like there's something dark and so i suppose what i'm looking for here is a sort of hope from all of this that this revelation that's coming about as a result of these times holds within it a kind of um you know the possibility of resurrection of or awakening yeah well i think in the christian tradition i'm not an expert on this but there's there, there's most certainly a difference between hope and optimism you know it's like uh, faith hope and love are the three the three great virtues in, in christianity in western christianity anyway um optimism is just naive at this point in history 
in my view. You know, certainly in the short term anyway. Um, it's one of the frustrations I used to have with, with the Green Movement or I, that I started to have when I was an activist. Um, one of them being that kind of language that you talk about there, this kind of attempt to speak to power by using its language. So exactly, you talk about climate change and resources and sustainability and carbon dioxide and all this dead stuff that means nothing to anybody. Uh, and then you politicize it and climate change becomes associated with the political left, which is what's happened. And then, as you say, that means all the right wing people then want to deny that it exists. And so that goes into the culture war bunker as well. Uh, and actually, fundamentally, this is about whether we want the, the, the oceans to die and the forests to fall and the, and the fish to disappear and the birds to come out of the sky where you live with your children, whether you're right wing or left wing. And it's just it's heartbreaking to me to see this bloody politicization of something that did not ought to be. I mean, politicization in the partisan sense, there's something which didn't ought to be like that at all, but also ought to be expressed in a way that's human. You know, it ought to be expressed in a way that, you know, it's poetry we need actually more than science in that regard. Yeah, climate science is fine, but actually what we're talking about is our human relationship to the rest of life. Hey, our conversation has been pretty surprising, I think. Like I, I didn't mention, I've read like a bunch of your essays and, I, you know, there's one in particular that I think a lot of people that I know were reading and it became very sort of formative and important. I guess it's the one that you maybe it was the one, the vaccine one. And um, it's lovely to speak with you. It's lovely to explore the, uh, I, there's a few people, there's conversations that are being had that give me some, yes, I understand your, just the, the distinction you're drawing between optimism and hope. And I kind of recognise that there has to be a kind of falling forwards into faith, a kind of yielding to hope and acknowledgement and recognition that this can't be resolved through further utility from further mobilization of uh, anything that's passing through the filter of individualism i'm very much aware of my own limitations and tendencies and uh, how much of a product of our culture i am but i feel very deeply and strongly that there's something else in here with us there's something else in here with us and it's um i love the uh, being able to have a conversation like this one where we're able to move between literal practical mythical scriptural and to recognize really i suppose much as again as we were talking about at the beginning the limitations of those systems of category really and the arbitrariness of some of them in those systems of category no, I love that. There's something else in here with us. That's a great way of putting it. That's exactly what it is. And it's, um, I mean, I felt, uh, what is it that Christ says when he talks to his followers? He says, uh, my, my yoke is easier than my burden is light. He says, if you follow me, it's actually surprisingly easy, he's saying, and it, it, it lifts something off your shoulders. And I, I certainly have found, well, since I became a Christian, but also weirdly, since the pandemic sort of really intensified at the same time i've kind of felt angry and despairing on on one level but another in another way i felt yeah you know i'm actually strangely hopeful that things are changing quite fast here and like you i've had a lot of conversations i mean i write about this quite regularly i have a lot of readers write to me i have a lot of comments on the substack that i'm writing on and it's just there's a lot of things are changing very fast you know and that's very difficult and discombobulating and it does do things like totally remove your trust in in the state and totally remove your trust in the media that we talked about earlier but then that's liberation as well you know because you haven't got those illusions anymore and it's like almost a lot of things are lifted off your shoulders and people are sort of starting to say okay well shit just got real as the kids used to say right and so things are it's like there's a lot of spaces are opening up for conversations to be had and things to be seen and people to realize what what, what truth is and what matters to them and what their values are. And I, I'm, I'm weirdly feeling, as I say, not exactly optimistic, but hopeful about things, because at the same time as you're kind of dragged into this kind of dark material realm, something is lifting you up in the other direction. It is like something's, something else is in here with us, you know. And um, yeah, it's just, yeah, I, I felt the same. And it's very interesting. I've had quite a few other people saying something similar to me recently too. So yeah, we shall see where it goes, won't we? Should we stay in touch then? Oh, yeah. I think we need to. We need to come back in a year's time and see how much has collapsed. <laughs> <laughs> we can do a rain check on, we can do a fact check on how much of this turned out to be true. A little rain check on Armageddon.
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, how are we doing? How are we doing on the apocalypse? Thanks, Paul. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's really good. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Paul Kings North. Please let me know what you think. If you're on Instagram, you can tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets on Twitter, of course, using the hashtag Under the Skin. Any questions, any inquiries, any thoughts, anything you want or need, let me know. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to others, such as Sebastian Younger, who wrote the book Tribe. He's fantastic. He talks a lot about how well the, the thrust of that book is how returning war vets adjust find it hard to adjust to society not only because of fatigue from combat and the horrors of war but also because it's better being in the army because people look out for each other that, i'm simplifying it necessarily or michael mead and brilliant episode where uh, we analyze which is what michael mead's been doing for his whole career mythology and find uh, universal or at least perennial themes throughout mythologies that can help us form perhaps some unifying global ideology that could uh, save the world and create new interdependent autonomous democracies all over the world but you know that's just what I think. If you're looking for uh, 10 minutes of relaxation, please check out my guided meditations on Above the Noise. Every Wednesday I release them. You should do them. I did a really lovely one the other day for a kid suffering from anxiety. I think that might be the one that's out now. I'm not sure, but have a listen anyway. Let me know what you think about that. Or see a live meditation with me on my YouTube channel. Thank you very much for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.